This is the Permaculture Podcast, I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to the remastered re-release of episode 1535, Beyond the War on Invasive Species, my interview with Dow Orion. This re-release rose to the topics of a number of references I've encountered to her work recently, including during my conversation with Zach Elfers, the recent MAPC episodes, in the upcoming interview with David Holmgren, who wrote the foreword for her book, and at the 2017 Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence, Hilary Banikowski, one of our presenters, cited Beyond the World Invasive Species as one of her go-to texts on how to relate to invasive plants. All of those instances, and some more in casual conversations, keep coming up about this book, Dow's work, and this particular interview. And so we have this release from the archives, re-edited, and with a new intro and ending. As you might imagine, Dow's book forms the basis of this interview. Together we take a broad view on the idea of invasive species, the underpinnings of her perspective to restoration, and how many modern projects depend heavily on the chemical weapons of our war on plants, herbicides. Enjoy this conversation with Dow, and I'll join you again afterwards. Dow, could you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to practice permaculture and writing beyond the war on invasive species? And we'll take the conversation from there. Well, I started out with a background in organic agriculture and came into permaculture pretty quickly uh, as I started to think more deeply about some more integrated systems on the farms that I was working and studying on. For example, where did the nutrient inputs come from and um, where was the water coming from and how could we kind of start to think about designing agricultural systems in a more integrated fashion? So I came to permaculture with a degree in organic agriculture and uh, have pretty much been incorporating it into my life as a farmer and educator since then. And over the years of kind of living a land-based lifestyle, I've been living and working and teaching in the southern Willamette Valley of Oregon for several years. I took a job as a botanist doing restoration with the Lane County, which is the county where I live, and um, soon became quite aware of how intensive and how reliant, I would say, the restoration industry is upon the use of herbicide to accomplish their tasks. And it was just, it was really shocking to me, not just that it was, you know, a spot spray here and there, but that it was kind of a tool that was worked into the very fabric of how people were thinking about restoring ecosystems. And it was just so counterintuitive to me as an organic farmer who, you know, had spent a lot of time and, you know, countless years of figuring out how to grow food crops, most of which are not native to America, using organic methods. And so to think about, you know, trying to get native plants established with the use of herbicide was very strange to me. So I really started to think more deeply and kind of use my permaculture training as a lens to look at some of the issues surrounding restoration and decided to write a book about it. (laughs) How long was the book in the making? One of the things that stood out to me when I first thumbed through it was the copious amounts of notes and research. Yeah, well... All in all, it was probably about five years from the time that I started it to its completion. But there were a couple breaks in there, having had a child in the meantime and bought a farm and getting that all started. 
So it was about two years of pretty intensive focus, I would say. Within both the native plant community and the permaculture community, there's a lot of discussion about this native versus non-native, native versus invasive species designations. With a title like the one of your book, Beyond the War, on invasive species, what do you see as your perspective on this conversation about natives versus non-natives and natives versus so-called invasives? I would say one of the main things that stood out to me, both as you know, at the time when I first got the job doing restoration and as I continued the research for the book, was that one of the main things that I felt was missing from the discussion of invasive species was looking at the ecosystem that supports them. And, you know, as an organic farmer and as a permaculture designer, I'm always thinking about the larger system and the dynamics that are happening and how they're influencing on-site elements. And pretty much every invasive species that I looked at had an ecological story to tell. And with my research in the field of ethnobotany, I knew that native species also have a story to tell and that one of the kind of interesting things that came to light for me in the starting to write this book was really seeing how native plants were and are relics of intentional management. So we think of them as just kind of like things that should be in a place and that invasive species are coming in and kind of ruining that or displacing them. But really, if we think about native plant communities as kind of feral or abandoned gardens, which to a large extent they are, that we could see how invasions and the process of succession occurring over the course of the past few centuries in the Americas especially kind of makes sense. And what I feel like is if we want populations of native species, which, you know, I think are great too, then we should be managing them and using them in a way that's similar to how they were managed and used for millennia prior to colonization of the Americas and other other continents. When I've been involved in this kind of conversation in the past, a lot of it has revolved around using the zone model for discussing where and how to manage these plants that have been labeled as invasive. Uh-huh. Things like autumn olive or multiflora rose are, are two that come to mind in particular here in Pennsylvania. And that for human use, there's something that we might cultivate, say, in our zones one through three, but that in certain ecosystems and areas that there may be a role for ongoing human management, say in that zone four, zone five, that semi-wild and wild space to remove some of these plants that have been introduced in order to protect habitat for other rare or endangered plants. Is that something that you would advocate or do you think of that in a different direction in how invasives are a part of the ecosystem as a whole now and that's the level that we should manage them at? I think they are serving ecological functions. And so when we think about making a management plan for them, we need to take into account what they're doing and make a plan to do it better. (laughs) So in the case of autumn olive, it's a nitrogen fixer. And it's an incredible food resource for birds. And it's also a nectar resource for pollinators. So if it's proliferating and it's, you know, not in the right place, 
and we feel like we want to do something else, we need to be looking at those functions that it's serving and try to mimic them with other things that we'd rather have there. But when it comes to native species doing those things, again, we can't just put native species in and expect them to just kind of be there if we take the autumn olive out. I really believe that there needs to be uh, a plan for consistent cultivation of native species because that's the kind of management that made native plant communities so diverse and prolific back in the day. It wasn't just that they were fields of flowers, they were food crops or medicine crops or fiber crops or fodder crops for animals. So if we can start to think in those terms, not just, oh, we need to get these invasive species out, but what do we want to be cultivating and how are we kind of reinserting ourselves into a role of stewardship of these ecosystems, not just to remove invasives, but to move forward into a really kind of different relationship with land that, you know, I think we think a lot about gardening and kind of the zone one, two space and how to relate to that. But when it comes to making decisions about large tracts of public land or parks or things like that, we kind of think of ourselves as needing to remove ourselves from that landscape. But I kind of think differently about that. And I think that that relationship changing is an important one when it comes to preservation and enhancement of native plant communities. Would it be fair to say then that your approach would be one of direct contact with the land and the plants through use and management in order to have a holistic relationship with the area that you call home and the work that you're doing? Yeah, I think that that's a big part of it. I feel one of the interesting things that I've found in doing this work, you know, and working with within the restoration community is that the idea of restoration kind of occurs in certain pockets. Like there's land that's set aside that we need to restore to native plant communities. And meanwhile, you know, business as usual just kind of goes on everywhere else. Like unless we live in an agricultural ecosystem, we don't really think about where our food comes from or we just kind of go to the store and get something and we don't think about the ecological ramifications of all of these pieces of our lives. And I'm kind of generalizing. I know a lot of people are thinking about it, but the idea that restoration occurs out there, I think really needs to shift to a sense of how restoration can and should include where we are and how we are shifting that relationship of seeing ourselves as ecological actors in our place. What you said there reminds me a lot of what comes out of environmental education, which is something my listeners have heard a lot come from me because of my background. And it reminds me of some of the work of David Sobel in particular about developing a sense of place, that when we really inhabit an area, we get to know it deeply, not only the people that call that area home, but also the plants and animals as well. And it sounds like that's something that you're advocating for. Yes, definitely. And I feel like part of that uh, awareness, you know, for me and looking at the invasive species that proliferate where I am, has really led me to see that they're responding to the types of land management that we collectively choose and support and designate as okay, you know. And so it's kind of up to us to be aware of that and 
start to manage things a little bit differently. I see them really as opportunities for a deeper level of engagement. This is a place where, as permaculture practitioners, we can intersect with things like land management policies when developments are being erected or when hearings are being held for like parks and recreation boards to develop new recreational areas that we can be having conversations about, you know, the disturbance of soil and the impact that that has on plants, especially I think of as a way to engage our neighbors when they're talking about weeds and things that as we come in and talk with them about, well, you know, disturbed land is something that is going to be used by plants that some people consider opportunistic because it provides an opening for them to proliferate. Yeah. And it's, it was really interesting for me doing some more in-depth research on the processes of ecosystem succession and what some of the new research is showing that there, there is no trajectory that can be defined. Like I think the kind of traditional understanding is that there's, you know, after a disturbance, there's the pioneer vegetation and then moving on up towards a climax vegetation uh, profile. But what people are finding is that that is unpredictable. Like you can't necessarily say that any particular species mix is going to exist at any particular time, or it's not predetermined, I should say. And so what instead we should be looking at is the shifting of conditions and how those conditions support particular arrays of plants and animals. And so, you know, if we desire particular plants and animals to proliferate, then we have to create the conditions that make that possible. And in a lot of cases, like in what you're saying, we're not really thinking in terms of the effects of our design decisions and the way that we implement uh, development projects. We kind of see them as existing outside of an ecosystem when really they are ecosystems in themselves. The Walmart parking lot is an ecosystem. So, you know, if we could start to think in those terms and see those connections and interactions everywhere we look, then I think that we can start making some more integrated and holistic decisions that have better ecological outcomes, meaning more diverse, more just awareness of the preservation and enhancement of biological diversity. The last two chapters of your book deal with restoration. In particular, the final one deals with permaculture and restoration. Those really stood out to me from having spoken with Mark Shepard about restoration agriculture, as well as having other conversations regarding land use policy development and being active in not only like the social realm of growing plants and interact with our neighbors and things that permaculture is very used to, but also in the policy space. And I was just wondering if you could speak to that idea of restoration and the space for permaculture within that work on a broader scale where it impacts these ideas like development or land use policies. Yeah, well, I think that there's part of the the kind of um, wilderness ideology that's pretty intense or that's been developed in in America in particular and forms a lot of the legal system and just the way that we interact with land I think has a lot to do with the way that we think about how we can and should interact with different sorts of spaces so 
you know, if it's agriculture, you can pretty much do whatever you want. You can spray whatever you want. You can till it as many times as you want per year. There's no real sense of a, a policy container for that, those kinds of actions. There may be in the future. And the same goes for forestry or mining. So we have this kind of idea that resource use in a market context, you know, is pretty much anything goes. And then we also have this idea that certain land is worthy of protection from those kinds of activities, which I think is good given the scale and type of resource extraction that's going on. But at the same time, what we're seeing in a lot of these other contexts is a lack of relationship that people don't really have a sense of how they can beneficially interact with land. It's kind of like all or nothing. Like, you know, we're either taking all of the soil carbon and minerals and forest resources and selling them to the highest bidder, or we can only just walk through on hiking trails. And I feel like there's an important conversation or several important conversations to be had about a middle ground between those. And I think there's some interesting discussions emerging about the idea of the commons and how these spaces that we all share, which is really everywhere, and all ecosystems and their services, but there are conversations about how we should be stepping into and feeling more comfortable in a role of stewardship. You know, I think it's it's kind of in its inception, so there's not a lot of examples to point to that I know of yet, but I know that over the course of a long history, human societies have figured out how to judiciously manage resources in ways that don't degrade them over time. I think that we're really coming to a point where even in, you know, Western society, we're going to need to figure out how to do that very quickly. And, you know, around where I live in Oregon, I'm surrounded by industrial forest land. And there's hundreds of thousands of acres of land that are privately owned or publicly owned, but basically unmanaged. And I see as a permaculture designer, so many opportunities for economic outcomes that are entwined with beneficial ecological outcomes. So if we could just kind of transcend the traditional or what's become the traditional management style in the industrial forestry model, which is, you know, clear cuts on 40-year rotations, there could be a lot more going on, both ecologically, we could improve and enhance the diversity of plants and animals that make use of forest ecosystems. We could have a lot more livelihood outcomes for people who live in the area. There's just so much there, but we have to kind of think differently about that relationship and not see ourselves, I think, as acting negatively. And I think that that's, well, one of the aspects of this discussion is, you know, I think everybody is really aware of how within a kind of capitalist model, we have done a lot of damage to ecosystems and we feel bad about it as we should but then we don't have to act in that way we don't have to just take and take and take and take we can actually act to regenerate 
ecosystems too. And there's just not a lot of incentive for that in the current market framework. But I really think that there can be and there should be. So having some of those conversations and bringing that into the way that policy is crafted and the way that laws around land use are just renegotiated, I think would be a really interesting place to bring this discussion. (laughs) To kind of bridge the gap between the untouched recreational wilderness, where we go, we leave footsteps, we take pictures, perhaps we camp, but generally to move the conversation away from, not away from, but to combine the two conversations about the commons and those things that we share collectively as a society with those ones of, as you laid out with industrial forestry or agriculture, where the land and the resources upon it are seen as property that can then be mined or extracted, whether that's the nutrients and carbon in the soil or the trees that are planted atop it, and look at how we can find kind of a middle road between the two that influences both sides to allow a space for restoration, not only of that property, but also of those commons. Yeah, I think that that's something that we should really be thinking about. I know for me, having worked a bit with tribal members in my area, there's a lot of interest in rekindling the stewardship models that made a lot of the native plant diversity, which and then, you know, influences animal diversity possible. And around where I live, like up in the mountains, uh, the Cascade Range, it was once a huge huckleberry fields. And now it's mostly become, because there's a lot of designated wilderness, which is amazing. It's, It's such an amazing resource to have this land set aside from those extraction models. But what we're starting to see is that there's conifers growing up and shading the huckleberries so that they're not as productive. They're not fruiting. And only in areas that have been burned do the huckleberries come back. And I know the Yakima tribe up in Washington has just over the past few years started to do some prescribed fire to encourage their stands of huckleberries again and it's just it's kind of interesting to start to think about those types of models starting up again because you know while we may think oh well huckleberries they're just kind of you know it's nice to go up and pick some but they're not like a staple food but they were back before people were able to just buy oranges from the store they were a staple source of vitamin c and so you know, if we thought about our region as a potential place to grow and procure our needs for vitamin C and all of the different minerals that are contained in those berries, we could start to think about relieving some of the the pressure that we put on the ecosystems where oranges are produced that we don't really see in our day-to-day lives in the Northwest. But the ecosystems where oranges grow used to be really productive wetlands that have been drained in in Southern California and Florida. So, you know, it's just, it's interesting to start to see how these layers interact. I like the way that you've been able to share a story with us that develops a picture 
of these ideas of the impacts that we have in the choices that we make, not only with natives versus so-called invasive plants, but also the choices that we make as consumers and how that impacts policy and what does and doesn't occur within a marketplace, which is that market is something I know many permaculture practitioners struggle with as we look for alternatives and the movement grows beyond just the land base, but also to the social and economic structures. How do we raise awareness and interact with all these different components in a way that is meaningful from the place that we come from? I received a number of questions from listeners. Could we move into some of those? Sure. And see where that takes the conversation? Yes. The first came from Stephen. He was wondering if someone wanted you to sell them on this approach to permaculture, as opposed to the paradigm of a war on invasive species. How would you summarize this idea, the differences, pros, cons, and so on? Well, permaculture design in its essence is a practice of thinking in terms of whole systems. And I feel like when it comes to invasive species, what's been the dominant conversation has been focusing on single elements, kind of separate from their ecological relationships. And so I feel like the first and biggest step is to take a step back. In the book, I talk about the concept of turning on the macroscope, which is something that the ecologist Howard Odom talked about. Ecology as a science is or should be a practice of having a macroscopic view and so, you know, there's a lot of research and study into the particular aspects of invasive species and what apparently makes them so threatening. But there's very little analysis of kind of meta-level processes that are going on that make it possible for them to proliferate. And I think that's the biggest thing that a permaculture-based approach can bring to the discussion is saying, okay, well, maybe we don't like what's happening here, but we need to take a step back. We need to take a macroscopic approach to looking at what these plants or animals are doing because they're not malevolent. They're just plants and animals. They don't have, you know, conscious intent. From an ecological perspective, they're exploiting available niches and um, it's up to us to figure out what those niches are and learn how to shift them and, and act on an ecological level to move things along in a fashion that we would rather see. I like that idea of turning on the macroscope. When studying ecology, we talked about everything from the individual all the way up to the biosphere, but most of the discussion revolved around management at the population and community level, which is very much closer to the individual within a particular ecosystem, as opposed to working from the biosphere down, that it was a very localized approach of what's this population, where's its local range within perhaps particular watershed or mountain range, as opposed to starting from a very broad view. Yeah, I came across a quote actually from Bill Mollison when asked, you know, if he uses native plants, he said, yeah, I use only native plants. They're native to the planet Earth. <laughs> Indeed, in some of my research into kind of long-term evolutionary history of plant and animal dispersal on the planet, what you see is a common roots, common ancestry. You know, everything came from the same 
place and there's been processes of dispersal and continental drift and, you know, changing populations, extinction processes, all of these things have had an effect on what we see today and know as native. And we're in a big shifting point again. And I think that there's, as we've talked about, there's ways to kind of engage with those processes in, in ways that can enhance biodiversity in a time when we're seeing it decline precipitously. And where you said that these plants and animals are exploiting available niches, in many cases, I find that it's humanity that's creating those niches. And we're also the ones that have been bringing those again, like air quotes, quote unquote, invasive species in, that this isn't what might be viewed as a historical or a natural process with how rapidly uh, materials are moving and disturbances are being created. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that there's some acceleration happening, for sure. But one of the things that was interesting to me, I'll just give an example that I was looking into for the book, was people may be familiar with the finches that Darwin found when he went to the Galapagos that kind of stimulated his appreciation and ability to elucidate the process of natural selection because he found there were 13 different species of finch that, you know, some had short beaks, some had long beaks. Uh, They all were exploiting different food resources on the islands. And what I found in looking at those finches was that the best archaeological evidence is now pointing to the fact that back in the day, 2.3 million years ago, uh, there was one species of finch that invaded the Galapagos at a time when the ocean currents and the air currents were much different. The isthmus of Panama was not closed, so the planet was in a different state. And the finches came from Venezuela and went out to the Galapagos. And they, at the time, 2.3 million years ago, they probably changed the ecosystem in a variety of ways. They were an invasive species. But kind of ironically, they became the thing that made Darwin realize, aha, there's some kind of process at work by which, you know, organisms are changing and can change and do change, both within themselves and their own genetics, but also influencing how the ecosystem around them is structured. So that was pretty interesting to me because I thought a lot about introducing a different terminology, like stopping to use the term invasive. But the more I looked into it and read some really interesting research in evolutionary biology, I realized that the invasion process is a process by which evolution happens and has happened throughout the course of history. If you think about the fish that were living in shallow seas, you know, back at the dawn of time, well, not quite at the dawn of time, but several hundred million years ago, the ones that moved out onto land and took those first steps, uh, the first, you know, land animals completely changed the game for the course of evolution of life on the planet. And they invaded. It was an invasion process. They changed the landscape. They were changed by the landscape. So it's an interesting kind of interactive process that's going on as well. The next question I have comes from Kellen. 
What is the best way to transition a large open field from native invasive species to a field of primarily nut and fruit tree swelled perennial systems while causing the least amount of damage to the land and the wildlife and native species? Well, it's an interesting question. I think the best answers in a permaculture design course should be it depends. <laughs> it depends on what the species is, I would say. It's interesting that Kellen mentioned native invasives. So it makes me wonder what exact plant they're referencing. But I think in general, one of the goals of a permaculture design implementation would be to enhance succession. So one of the things about planting fruit and nut trees and even the construction of swales, one of the reasons that you're doing that type of water harvesting is so that you can enhance the ability for the plants that you're wanting to obtain a yield from to grow. So when we're talking about kind of creating an ecosystem that has human yields and maybe yields of animal food and stuff like that, one of the things to look for would be to replace or mimic the function of whatever invasive species you may be working with, um, with other things on your farm. And also looking at the ecological functionality of that invasive and kind of trying to outthink it by a few paces. For example, if your field is covered with bull thistle, which has a really deep taproot, has this amazing pollen-rich flowers, has seeds that a lot of migratory songbirds love to eat. If you're wanting to take that away and, and move the ecosystem along, you have to kind of mimic what that thistle is doing with other things and putting in something like daikon radish or thinking about increasing shade, increasing um, root depth, penetration of different plants so that the functionality that that thistle is serving at that particular time in the evolution of your farm will be eclipsed by other things. So not thinking in terms of so much of taking it out, but of adding things that are going to do what it's doing and do it potentially better and with more yields for pollinators and more yields for people and more yields for those songbirds. To tie back into what you were saying earlier in the interview, then we're managing succession by enhancing ecosystem services as we transition from what exists towards what it is that we're looking for as permaculture practitioners? Yeah, I think managing succession is a big part of figuring out this kind of long-term strategy of best ecological stewardship practices. There's some really interesting research coming out and already available about the ways that various indigenous societies manage succession in perennial systems. For example, large swaths of the Amazon rainforest weren't you know, wild. They were planted and they were managed on a rotational basis to provide perennial crop yields on a really large scale. So hundreds of thousands of acres, which over time, you know, if you imagine those practices kind of playing out on a landscape scale over time, what you see is kind of a forest garden where everything is useful somewhat to not just to people, but there's values to other creatures in the system as well, because they also have value. 
so I think looking to models like that, there was a, actually a really great book that just came out. I'm forgetting the title right now, but it's about the Maya and their successional management strategies and forest gardening strategies and how they kind of shaped the ecology of southern Mexico and uh, northern Central America. And then the next question is from Adrian. Which invasive species in the Northeast do you think have the most economic potential? That's an interesting question. You know, I'm really interested in the potential of um, Japanese knotweed. I was actually um, reading an article recently that I think like 60 or 70 percent of the Reservatrol supplements that you could buy in a store right now actually come from Japanese knotweed. And Reservatrol is something that people take to help prevent heart disease. And it's also found in um, red wine. That's one of the reasons why people say you should drink a glass of red wine every day. But for people who can't or don't want to do that, taking a Reservatrol supplement is a good option. And Japanese knotweed is actually really full of those compounds. So there's kind of a potential medicinal yield there. It also contains a compound that is uh, one of the only things that's known to, well, it's part of a complex of herbs that are known to treat uh, Lyme disease. And the herbalist Stephen Herod Buner has been doing a lot of research on Japanese knotweed and its effects on Lyme. And so, you know, as Lyme disease creeps up further north in the Northeast and elsewhere throughout the country, I think that there's a lot of potential for using it in the treatment of Lyme disease and its symptoms. And the next comment, which is a bit of a question, comes from Rick. And he says, not a question, but in a great bit of irony, the next post below the one that I made on Facebook when I asked the listeners for a call for questions, was a paid message from Rick's local government, the Okanagan Waterside, about the dangers of invasive zebra and quagga mussels. He was wondering if you have any thoughts on those species. Yeah, uh, I talk about zebra mussels quite a bit in my book, or at least in one section, and they are an interesting phenomenon. And one of the things, again, to think about with them is to step back, again, from looking the zebra quagga mussel for a second and look at the water bodies that they're coming into. I know at least in the Great Lakes and throughout North America, 33 of the native mussel species are extinct in North America, native freshwater mussels. So they were killed by pollution, dredging, and over-harvesting for the button industry for the most part, as well as other associated changes in water and hydrological systems. So from an ecological perspective, there's a big niche there (laughs) available for something that could withstand the types of pressures that we are putting on our water resources. In the Great Lakes, zebra mussels have been shown to accumulate PCBs, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, salmonella, lead, cadmium, mercury. They're filter feeders, all mussels are, but zebra mussels, um, even though they're the size of a dime, can filter up to a quart of water per day, each one. So they're like these amazing filtration systems. 
And what they're doing by accumulating all of these pollutants that we're putting into water, they're accumulating it in their bodies. And if you imagine what's going to happen over the course of time, they'll die and decompose and all of those particles will be buried in sediment, which is probably the best place for them to go rather than free floating in the, the body of water where they can be taken up by fish and seabirds and people, amphibians, etc. So they're serving this function. They're filtering water. So again, with in the case of these zebra mussels, you know, I see a lot of these things of, oh, we really want to stop the invasion or stem it. I think what people are missing in a lot of these areas is a discussion about how can we restore and enhance the ecology of the the freshwater resources that we live near and depend on? How can we reestablish populations of other freshwater mussels so that they can do the job that zebra quagga mussels are going to do if they arrive? And how can we stop the inflows of nutrients and sediment and persistent organic pollutants into waterways? that the zebra mussels will come in and make use of if they're there. Those are the the better questions. I think, you know, invasive species, it's kind of a distraction, I think, from a larger discussion about how we're using and interacting with natural resources. So I would prefer our policymakers and people who are even working in the field of restoration to be looking at really improving ecological functionality so that the risk of invasion and the thing that invasive species are going to be doing uh, when they come into an ecosystem, that it's like they won't even have a job. So that it's much less likely that the invasion will occur, at least on any scale that would that could be potentially economically detrimental, which is one of the things about zebra mussels. People don't like them because they attach to hard surfaces. From a human standpoint, that's not ideal because we have things like docks and in the Great Lakes, there's a lot of factory intakes where they're taking in water and the mussels are all up on there and they have to be scraped off. So it's causing an economic outcome that people don't like. So they are considered bad, but they're doing other stuff that I would consider good. <laughs> and what you detailed there again points to that holistic approach versus a reductionist approach to the conversation. And there's, in the field of resource management, there's a discussion between issues and problems, whereas we might focus on the zebra mussels as a problem, but really the issue that's allowing them to have this niche is because of broad-scale degradation of the watershed, and that if we work on practices upstream to restore that watershed, then that reduces the availability of this niche and all of the sediment and nutrients and other materials that the mussels are thriving on. Yes, Exactly. And the final question that we have comes from Chad, and he was wondering if you could elaborate on the statement, in Washington, helicopters apply the herbicide amazepur to smooth cord grass growing in estuaries. Yes. Spartina, or smooth cord grass, is considered, you know, it's kind of one of the top priority invasive species in the West Coast. So California, Oregon, and Washington a lot of people are really concerned about it. It's native to the East Coast, so from Texas pretty much up to Maine, it grows along uh, shorelines there. 
over the course of 10 years in Willapa Bay in Washington, which is one of the nation's largest producers of oysters, the Departments of Natural Resources, the Nature Conservancy, USDA, undertook a huge Spartina eradication project, which included spraying amazapyr and glyphosate-based herbicides on the estuary, on the Spartina, in the attempts to control it. So this was like 11,000 acres of Spartina that was sprayed with herbicide. And a lot of people in the area were really upset about it, understandably so. And one of the things that's interesting about this, Spartina in particular, is that, again, there were industry interests, the oyster farmers, who were finding that the Spartina proliferating made it so their mudflats, which they depend on for oyster production, were not mudflats anymore because they were becoming salt marshes. They were kind of moving along in their successional process with this plant that happens to be from the East Coast. So the drive towards eradication came originally from the oyster farmers. You know, and then from a bigger picture perspective, again, what's happening in the Willapa Bay and the the way, the reasons that Spartina has proliferated has more to do with changes in upstream processes. The entire watershed above the Willapa Bay has been clear-cut. There's been massive sediment flows down into the bay. And while there hasn't been any research that directly correlates the proliferation of Spartina with inputs of sediment into the bay, there are people who think that that may have something to do with it. And so, again, in this case, the eradication has been considered successful as of 2012. There were only two acres of Spartina left. But in my opinion, as an ecologist, within the next few years, there's going to be Spartina or something like it that comes in again because it's a long-term successional-based process based on an ecosystem that's changing, that's constantly changing. Um, And the herbicide-based approach to managing it is just ridiculous. And it's very concerning to me that that was the approach that was taken in Willapa because it sets a precedent for that to continue again. And it's just like conventional agriculture where you're going to get into this kind of treadmill where you believe that you can use herbicide to address the symptom of a much larger issue. And it's just not ecologically rational. So just as with the zebra mussels and looking at doing restoration in a holistic way to address the niche that's being created, that's the same approach that you would take towards the smooth cord grass and other plants or animals that are being considered invasives for the region that we might find ourselves in, that we're better off looking for a way to close those opportunities, those disturbances, those created niches, and by doing so that kind of alleviates these problems? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, scale is a really important thing to consider too, because, you know, on your farm or even like a community park scale, it may be easier to address some of these processes in a short-term kind of fashion. For example, utilizing well-managed rotational grazing of goats to manage a, a patch of Canada thistle on your farm or ranch may be 
a little bit easier to approach than how are we going to deal with Spartina in the Willapa Bay, which has numerous stakeholders and private property interests and things like that. But one of the things that I would encourage people to think about is how, you know, if we're thinking about ourselves as ecological actors and we're looking at things like oyster farming or cattle ranching and looking at the ways that those are changing ecosystems as well, we can start to see that the way that we approach them has ecological ramifications that we can anticipate and work with and not be in a constant state of like battle or surprise that, you know, there's weeds coming out or, you know, there's plants proliferating. I think that we have to start using our ability to think long-term and think in terms of systems and understand some basic ecological processes in order to inform the best decisions that we can make on a day-to-day level. Because in the case of Spartina, you know, I think it could have been predicted that something like that would happen over the course of after a hundred years of farming oysters and making use of these mudflats that something, a plant would come and the succession of the mudflat would continue. It's not going to continue to be a mudflat for the next five million years. Like there's going to be something just like in any ecosystem, it's going to change. And we can direct that and, and play with it a little bit and adjust our management strategies based on that knowledge. But we can't stop it. And that's the thing about chemical management, whether it's in agriculture or in restoration. It's this process of arresting succession or the attempt to, by using herbicide, you know, over time, it just it just becomes more and more ridiculous really now we're seeing you know uh, herbicide resistance in agriculture and people are acting as though that's like a surprise but it's crazy that people don't really think that that would happen or maybe they do and they just are planning on selling another product which is kind of what's happening in that field just because we've developed a solution in the moment doesn't stop evolution from finding a new way forward yes (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really appreciate everywhere that you've taken us today, Dow, from your biography and background discussing how you came to permaculture and writing your book, Beyond the War on Invasive Species, to answering these listener questions. Thank you for the time that you've spent with me today and joining me on the Permaculture Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. And that was Dow Orion. You can find out more about her work, as she is a permaculture practitioner, at resiliencepermaculture.com, and her book, Beyond the War on Invasive Species, at chelseagreen.com. Coming off of this conversation, I think about the interview with Zach Elfers, and what we can do to care for our native plants. That, rather than worrying about pushing back against invasives, we can care for those natives by taking care of the seed bank. Support the things we care about. Save seed and spread it throughout our Zone 3 and Zone 4. Tend to rare native plants that may require a more delicate approach in Zones 1 and 2, and to leave the plants in Zone 5 the hell alone. That that rare space that still might be considered wilderness doesn't need us there, harvesting or tending in any way, but just observing and learning at the very most. 
At the time that this interview was recorded, I liked Dow's book, and I continue to enjoy it because of how well-researched it is, and that she's included copious endnotes. Whether or not you agree with her perspective, there's no question, as you might have in some other permaculture texts, about where her ideas come from and the evidence that support her thoughts. This isn't being pulled out of thin air, but is blending together research and well-considered thoughts and arguments into an articulate book that details conservation, the restoration of habitat, and the role of both native and what we might call invasive species. As someone who wants to see more scientific literacy and research in permaculture literature, this book is an entry into a new model for how to proceed with writing books for the community, as well as for a broader audience. It fills a niche somewhere between a peer-reviewed article and a popular science book. And not only do I like the book, but I also like Dow because of her long-term conscious approach to our interactions with the environment. Not only did I get a sense of that through the conversation that you listen to here, but also in continuing to follow her work on Facebook and to check out her website from time to time. I like that she gives us a decision-making process that continues that long-view approach of permaculture, that we take the future into consideration and extend our perspective forward as well as backward, in time and space, so that we consider not only where things can go into the future, but also what got us to this moment. With that is the broad-scale view of how to impact problems that arise by digging down into the issues and looking beyond the problems, so that we're using a whole systems approach and systems thinking to create large, elegant solutions. We're drawn in to ask different and bigger questions. Far too often, I find from my own personal experiences, it's easy to drill into the details without doing a larger analysis. We don't pull out the macroscope, but rather apply the microscope, looking at the little things that we can change rather than finding those leverage points where we can create the largest impact for the smallest input. So we can use the tools within permaculture that allow us to model and examine an ecosystem such as a zone analysis to take a track of land or a waterway, and see where the heaviest influences are by people, plants, animals, the environment. To look at the entire watershed and biome where a space is located. And as we do that, we can look at the interface with larger problems and figure out what different systems there are at play so that we can look at the landscape as well as the social and economic structures at work. In doing so, we can make choices that use the principles of permaculture to satisfy the ethics in a way that can have incredibly far-reaching and lasting change. With those thoughts and what you heard from Dow today, what do you think? Is this your first time listening to this interview? Or if you've been a long-time listener, did you hear it the first time around and decide to go ahead and give it another listen? Whether new or old, I'd love to hear from you. Leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.